Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be here this morning. Today, we're going to be talking about prayer. So when we approach prayer, we often think in categories of what to pray. We think about the Lord's Prayer, maybe we use the ACT acronym, maybe some other things to pray about, like prayer requests that you would record in a journal. But something that we don't think about as often is the quality of our prayers. At times, we focus so much on what we are praying that we don't consider the nature of what we're actually saying or maybe where it's coming out of um, in our hearts. But the quality of the prayer is just as important, if not even more important, than what is prayed itself. So today we'll look at why the quality of our prayer matters, and then we'll explore five qualities that the biblical authors give us. So to start, why it matters is communion. Our The foundation of our prayer is our union with Christ. Paul compared our intimate union with Christ to marriage. In the way that a husband and wife are mysteriously and profoundly made one, so also we are made one with Christ when we are saved. Ephesians 5.32 When we received the gift of faith and our sins were forgiven, we were immersed into Christ Jesus, both his death and resurrection, and are now profoundly one with him. Romans 6, 1 through 11. Jesus himself prayed that we would be one and that we would be in him and in the Father, even as he and the Father are one. John 17, 12 through 21. So our union with Christ is so deep that we are one even as the Father and Jesus are one. We are sinners who are worthy of God's wrath that we have been reconciled by faith to an intimate union with the holy God of the universe so intimate that we are considered his bride. And from this union comes our communion with him. As we have been united with God through Christ and have the Holy Spirit within us, we are able to commune with God Almighty. And we do this primarily through prayer. It's simply just how we communicate with him. So now in marriage, one of the biggest problems couples face is a breakdown in communication. Particularly, it is often the woman who complains that my husband never speaks to me. Well, what if the husband were to respond, what would you have me talk to you about? She says that all she wants is for him to listen to her, share what is on his heart, talk about the kids, maybe share some appreciation for her, and sometimes talk about like, what he's struggling with life. So they sit down. The man sits, starts listening. There's a little yawn. He's a little tired. Honey, think you could go a little faster. So she finishes up, a little aggravated. Then he starts his talk and says, hmm, okay, what's on my heart? I'd really like to play golf this weekend. I'm thinking about that a lot. Yeah, that's what I saw in my heart. Hmm. She said, talk about the kids. Uh, the kids are kind of aggravating. Oh, uh, I love them, but um, let's see. Okay, appreciation for her. Hmm. Honey, I appreciate you a lot. Okay, what was the last thing? Oh, yeah, I'm struggling a little bit with um, eating too much at work. You know those honey buns in the, the food machine? keep going back to those. So anyways, I think that was it. Can I go watch football now? And so he was a great husband. He listened to her and he talked through all the points that she gave to him. But obviously the quality wasn't there. But man, we do this with God, don't we? We go through the ACTS acronym, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, to give a short prayer of adoration. God, you're good confession. Forgive me my sins today. Thank you that I'm alive. Thank you for your love. Lord, help me glorify you. And then we move on with our day. 
And so is it wrong to pray that? that? Not necessarily. Maybe you're just on your way to work. You say a quick prayer to the Lord. That's fine. But is that how a bride should talk to her husband all the time? Certainly not. And certainly not how we should talk to Christ. So we sense that like, our prayer should be more vibrant, meaningful, backed with substance, all those types of things, that there should be a quality there that's sometimes lacking. But what does that actually look like to have a healthy communion with Christ? And so that's what I hope to show you today. We're going to look at the five qualities of faithful prayer. We can say that faith comes from these things. So James tells us that there is a way to pray wrongly in James 4.3. So then this begs the question, how do I pray correctly? What do I need to do? What do I need to be? What do I need to say to pray a faithful prayer? Well, these are the five qualities that our prayers must stem from. So first, our prayer must come from faith. So in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, you can turn there if you'd like, Jesus tells his disciples to come to God and make requests. He says, ask and will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So Jesus encouraged his disciples to ask to seek and knock, specifically to do these things expecting to be answered, to seek expecting to find. He was actively urging the disciples, expect God to answer your prayers. Your father is good and wants to give good gifts to his children. Just ask. And this is an integral part of our relationship with God. God is pleased and delighted when we come to him with requests, and he is grieved when we don't come to him. When we come to God with our needs and desires, we are saying that you are good and generous. I believe that. You, God, can satisfy these desires. And you can meet my needs like no one else. So I am bringing my desires and my needs to you and you alone. And in coming to God, coming to him specifically to receive from him, we honor him. We worship him when we come to him with requests, expecting him to answer with good gifts. But when we don't come to God with our requests, we disrespect him. We see, say either that we don't need him and his goodness, which is an offense because we obviously do need him, or we're saying that we don't believe he is good, which makes God a liar in our eyes. Both of those are serious, and so we should come to God with expectant requests. So that passage, Matthew 7 through 7 11, assumes faith in God, but doesn't mention it explicitly. Let's look at some other passages that mention faith outright. You can turn to Matthew 21. 18 through 22. In this passage, Jesus has been ministering. He just cleansed the temple um, in Jerusalem. And as he was living, leaving the city, came across a fig tree while he was hungry. It says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So after ministry and travels, Jesus was hungry. In the distance, he saw a fig tree, full of foliage, rich, green. He hoped to satisfy his appetite 
or at least hold it at bay until he could get a real meal. When he gets close, there are no figs. The fig tree's primary purpose is to bear fruit, and it wasn't doing even that. So Jesus cursed the tree, and it withered up. Crazy, right? The disciples thought so too. You can look at verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. If you're like me, there's a tendency to minimize the great reality of this passage. There are so many who abuse passages like these to manipulate people, to give them their finances, their support, their positive reviews, for their reputation. And a lot of them, we fear making similar mistakes, overemphasizing faith, um, the misunderstanding of the flock, and to great detriment to them. And in some ways, we are right to do that. There are many people who have been deeply hurt when a loved one died after many had said to them, I prayed that God would heal your father or your mother. And I know God will answer because he is good and he loves you and he has promised to answer the prayer of faith. But then the loved one died. Ouch. Consider what that does to a person. They start asking, does God not love me then? Is he not good? Is he even able to answer prayers? Do I actually have faith? And it starts a huge catalyst of doubt that is entirely unhelpful and damaging at times to a person's faith. There are even more drastic consequences, too. One couple named the Parkers, they yearned for their son to be healed, who was diabetic. They had taken him to a faith healing meeting. He had been selected to be brought into the stage. He was brought up, he was prayed for, and the preacher announced, little boy, you are healed in the name of Jesus Christ. The parents were overjoyed and immediately took their son off of his medication. They knew that since they had faith, their son had been healed. But in just a few weeks, the boy died because he didn't have the medicine to ward off his condition. Even when his condition had worsened, the parents did not do anything for fear that relying on medicine would show a weakness of faith. So we see that the misunderstanding of passages like this has caused grievous consequences. This is serious. But it's also confusing because these passages do say, ask anything and it will be given to you. John 15, 16, John 16, 23. But does anything really mean anything? Is what we're tempted to ask. If I don't receive it, is my faith faulty? How do we make sense of these promises? Well, for starters, we must understand that God does not always answer prayers the way that we expect. Just because we ask and we do not receive the way we expect to does not mean that God has not answered our prayers. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55, 8. We dare not judge God for the way he answers prayers. It may not always make sense in the moment, like with Job, but in the end, he is always doing good. And just because he does not answer in the way we expect, that does not mean he does not answer with what is best. Secondly, we must remember that faith is not the only quality required for our prayers to be answered. Yes, faith is absolutely necessary. We see that in James 1, 6-8. But there are other qualities in the equation as well. So let's look at those other qualities now, and then loop back again to faith and tie it all together. But for now, we just need to see that faith is important and is not to be neglected in our prayers. So prayer comes from faith, but faithful prayer also comes from knowledge of God's will. You look at those various references. 
That faithful prayer comes from knowledge of God's will. So this is a knowing of God's will coupled with a yearning for the accomplishment of it. Jesus said that it was his food to do the will of God. John 4, 34. Jesus yearned for and was filled up by doing the will of his Father. Paul, when he prayed for the Colossians, he prayed that they may know God's will so that they may walk in a manner worthy of their Lord. Colossians 1, 9-10. They did not want to just know God's will. They wanted it to happen. They wanted to see them walking in God's will. And that is the kind of will that John talks about in 1 John 5, 14-15. He wrote, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. So if we have asked according to God's will, we are heard. And if we are heard, then we have the requests we have asked for. So if you have any confidence in praying, know that you can have confidence in praying to God, your will be done. God loves to hear that prayer. He loves to hear his children expressing their longing for God to do what he desires. So, some practical application of this is to pray the Bible. Oh, you're okay. Not on the slides. So, you can write practical application. Pray the Bible. If you're struggling to know what to pray, look up all the will of God verses in the Bible. Verses like 1 Thessalonians 4 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. John 4, 34, praying about Jesus' food being to do the will of the Father. And pray that for yourself as well. Pray these verses to God, and he will answer them. We can have that confidence and that security and that boldness that these are the prayers that God will answer. And don't stop there. Pray through the Psalms, pray through the Ten Commandments, creeds that are rooted in scripture, or the Lord's Prayer. Praying through these will channel your prayers on the path of God's will, and will enable you to pray confidently, knowing God will answer these things. I personally have found the Lord's Prayer to be the most helpful and teach me about what to pray according to God's will. The categories it provides are so comprehensive, help me see God, my needs, really everything, in the right light, so that I can pray about those things in the right way. Clay did a sermon on the Lord's Prayer like four years ago. It's called Overcoming Prayerlessness. It's on Spotify. Um, it's a great start to go learn more about the Lord's Prayer. I commend that to you. And so part of God's will that is important for prayer is that we pray from humility. So we could say that faithful prayer comes from humility. So praying with humility is really part of praying according to God's will, a subcategory per se but I highlight it because of how easy it is to pray with selfish motives. But if we pray like that, we're told that we will not be heard. James wrote, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God does not take pleasure in hearing selfish prayers. These are not prayers that are according to his will. From all the scripture, we see that prayer needs to be fundamentally not about ourselves say fundamentally because at its core it's just not about us. That's not to say we can't pray about our own lives but our prayers should be characterized by two things. 
first by God-centeredness, and then concern for others. So let's take a look at God-centered prayer. So there are lots of prayers that are absolutely God-centered in the Bible, and there are wonderful encouragements to learn from. One such example is Daniel 9, when Daniel intercedes for Israel. Um, I definitely commend it to you to study and notice how it is all about God, even though he's talking about specific things. And so his focus is on the Lord throughout all of it. And that's something that we also should have in our prayers. The most clear and simple directive regarding God-centered prayer is seen in the Lord's Prayer. It starts off, Our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants the foundation of our prayers to be all about God, his glory, his name, his kingdom, and the accomplishment of his will. Prayer is not a way for us to simply get what we want, but is a means that God has created to glorify his own name and to accomplish his purposes. Those are the foundational purposes of prayer that need to be on our mind when we approach God. And Sproul, Packer, and many others have said that if we do not know God, we simply will not pray. Understanding who God is fuels our prayers, and it guides us in praying correctly. When we understand God, we will pray with the humble reference um, that is seen like in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 10. So what fuels this God-centered prayer? Another practical point is to begin with meditation. So, it's a practical application, begin with meditation. John Piper has said, where the mind isn't brimming with the Bible, the heart isn't brimming with prayer. Let me read that again. Where the mind isn't brimming with the Bible, the heart isn't brimming with prayer. The mind that is not brimming with knowledge of God is not going to be yearning to talk with him. George Mueller, maybe one of the most faithful praying men ever, said that the secret that made prayer easy for him was to start with scripture. He said that once he filled his mind with truth, he could pray for hours on end. So if you want to pray richly, God-centered prayers, study the scriptures. Seek to know God as he has revealed himself, and you'll quickly see that your prayers begin to be changed. So humble prayer is God-centered, but humble prayer is also concerned with others. Our prayers are supposed to concern others. Paul urged the Ephesian church to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. He called them to be alert and to persevere in making supplication for all the saints, Ephesians 6.18. He calls us to do this because the forces of evil are real. They are powerful, and they are out to destroy the church, Ephesians 5.16 and Ephesians 6.12. So pray for your brothers and sisters. They have a lion prowling around seeking to devour them. 1 Peter 5.8 The hordes of Satan are out to oppose the church. Ephesians 6.12 The days are evil and the enticements of the world are strong. And on our own we are weak. Ephesians 5.16 So pray. Don't take the steadfastness of your brothers for granted. Don't assume that their walk with the Lord is fine or will continue to be fine. Obviously don't assume poorly about them. But know that they need your prayers to be strong. And that part of their sanctification and their faithfulness to their final day is based on your prayers for them. Paul also urged Timothy to pray for all people, especially leaders and those in high positions. 1 Timothy 1, 
1 Timothy 2, excuse me, 1 through 4. So we also should pray for all types of people, saved and unsaved alike, particularly for our leaders, so that we may live a full Christian life in peace. Remember also Jesus calling us to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us, Matthew 5, 44. So all these passages shout to us, don't just pray for yourself. Remember others, even your enemies, in your prayers. Be like Timothy, who had genuine concern for others in Philippians 2.20. And act on those concerns by praying. Brothers and sisters, God desires that we pray for one another. And a sweet aspect of cultivating this type of prayer uh, that I've seen and many other have borne testimony to is that it kills pride. We can get so caught up in our own minds thinking, oh, I've got to study for this test. This thing isn't working in my car. I want to find a spouse, but oh man, I've got to grow a lot before I'm ready for that. School is expensive. Am I going to be in debt? And just the list starts going on. And maybe even that, we're driven to the Lord in prayer. But we get so hyper-focused on our own lives to the point that even when we take those burdens to God, we forget to praise Him. Or we forget the needs of others and fail to consider the needs of others more important than our own. But when we make a concentrated effort to pray God-centered prayers and to pray for others, our eyes become open to the magnitude of God, the weightiness of the burdens of others, how God needs to carry them, to help them. And then our needs don't seem quite so big anymore. We become content to trust God and to take the burdens of others to Him, seeing their needs as more important than our own. So when you sense that you're becoming too self-centered in your prayers, stop and turn toward God and intercede on the behalf of others. This alone will aid you mightily in learning to pray according to God's will. The practical application for this is to ask others how you can pray for them. This is something that all of y'all do a lot, but I say it because I know that's something that I can start to take for granted. Like, oh, somebody else has probably asked them, or I've done that a lot. I don't really want to do this again. It feels like going through the motions. Long story short, we get weary of asking one another how we can pray for each other. But this is something that we ought to persevere in, like Paul said in Ephesians 6, 18, to persevere in praying for one another. And when this happens, you'll simply just be encouraged to pray for them. Once you ask somebody, then they're on your heart, they're on your mind. The next time you go to pray, think, oh, I asked this person yesterday how I could pray for them. Let me do that now. So if it's a regular habit to ask people, then it'll quickly become a regular habit to pray for one another. But don't just ask for petition requests, you could say. Ask people what they're thankful for, what they're rejoicing in, and how they're praising God lately. And you'll find that seeing other people praise God and seeing the good things that God is doing in their lives will simply encourage you, teach you to pray more, teach you to praise God better, thank the Lord more often, and thank the Lord for what he's doing in other people's lives, not just what he's doing in your own. And in giving thanks and also these prayer requests, get specific. I was listening to a Paul Washer podcast one time, and he said, that one old lady came to him and said, Paul, you know what general prayer requests get? General answers. If you want to see God work, ask for specific things, and you will see God clearly act in your ministry. So when somebody asks you how to pray for them, how they can pray for you, tell them specifically, keep them updated on it, and the same thing. Don't just say, like, oh, God's been so good to me. I'm so thankful for that. Like, tell specifically something that God has done for you, even if it's just that you're thankful to waking up another day if you're aware of his grace to you a sinner um, be specific about those things so those are some examples of humble, humble prayer according to God's will but 
The next quality is a righteous life. Faithful prayer comes from a righteous life. So we see this positively. That was my watch, so somebody let me know if I'm going over. Yeah, positively, how we conduct our lives matters to God. When we are righteous, God's ears are toward us. Psalm 34, 15. He hears us when we cry out to him, and he delivers us from all of our troubles. Psalm 34, 17. God loves to answer the prayers of the righteous man. James wrote about Elijah, how God answered his prayers because he was righteous. If you turn to James 5, if you look at verse 16, it says that the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So that is wild. Three years and six months, no rain on the entire world, because Elijah prayed. That's crazy. I mean, what do you even call that? Like, James called it great power. Remember verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. That's incredible. The righteous person who makes requests to God is answered. We see this negatively too, right? The person who is not righteous, the wicked, those who live in habitual, unrepentant sin, they are not heard by God. We say we see this negatively. In Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist wrote, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Psalm 66, 18. When we don't live a righteous life, our communion with the Lord is interrupted. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 7. Oh, sorry, not that yet. When a husband acts unrighteously around his wife, even when it's not directly involving her, the relationship is hurt. And so it is with us and our Heavenly Father. Our unrighteousness puts a roadblock between us and Christ. Our sin hurts our relationship with Him. It grieves the Holy Spirit that is within us, Ephesians 4.32. And a practical example of this is given by Peter. He said that husbands must live with their wives in an understanding way. Peter also commands husbands to show honor to their wives as weaker vessels and co-heirs of the inheritance. If a husband fails to do so, his prayers are hindered, 1 Peter 3.7. So husbands do not see the differences, the needs, the idiosyncrasies of their wives and adjust themselves to them. These men are not heard by God. Even believing husbands who are saved, believers can have their connection with God hindered by sin. So brothers and sisters, what a sacrifice we make when we choose sin. We sacrifice our joy, our peace, our experiential abiding oneness with Christ when we do not repent. God does not answer our prayers when we live in unrepentant sin. The ability to carry the burdens of others to God, the ability to worship Him, to give thanks to Him, to intercede on behalf of others, they will not be pleasing music, pleasing incense, not sweet music. They will not be words that bless the heart of God. They will be chaff in the wind, weightless, unheard, unfruitful, if they are not backed by a righteous life.
But what joy there is in the righteous life. Blessed is the man who walks in the path of the Lord. And we have to sacrifice greatly for this. It will be hard. And frankly, I've not experienced this intense sacrifice yet. I think I'm starting to, maybe a little bit, but the testimonies of older saints resound. Every sacrifice for God's sake, for righteousness' sake, no matter how hard, it deepens our walk with the Lord. And the more we give up in this life to honor the Lord who loves us and has saved us by his grace, the more sweet our communion with him, the less interrupted our attention to him will be, and the greater reward we will have for all eternity. So the first practical application from this is that we simply guard our heart. Proverbs 4.23 says that from our heart flows the wellspring of life. Or like Paul warned Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. The moment you see sin intruding on your unity with Christ, your communion with him, put it to death. Mortify it. Guard yourselves from the influences that dull yourselves to the things of God. Keep yourself from evil's enticements. Um, fill yourself with wonderful godly truth and engage with it. Don't passively listen to worship music or podcast sermon or read your Bible. Truly seek to draw near to God in these things. Turn your affections towards him. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, incline my heart to your testimonies. Give your whole lives to God as the living sacrifices, Romans 12.1. 12, 12, and whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, intentionally do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. But if you're feeling the weight of the need for righteous life and um, hopefully feeling also your shortcoming in that, like I am, then that leads us to our next practical point is to confess your sins. You can turn to Psalm 19, 12 through 13. This is a sweet prayer um, when we feel our sins mounting before the Lord. Verses 12 through 13 says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This prayer is a great comfort because it covers all of our sins that we could commit. It confesses and asks for protection against presumptuous sins, the sins that we do intentionally even though we know it's wrong. But also prays against those sins that we don't know that exist in our closet. But God knows them, and he will forgive us of them if we confess them, even without us knowing what they are. And this way we can rest secure and keep short accounts with God. So yes, we are not fully perfect, we are not completely righteous, but we are forgiven if we confess our sins and put our faith in Christ. We are righteous by faith in Christ, and so our communion with God is granted and our prayers are answered. And there's also the familiar prayer in Psalm 139, 23 through 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David prayed that God would show him his sin, and then lead him out of it into the way of life. We are to model David in this, and ask God to show us our sin, to show us the path out, that we might better live the righteous life, that we might have deeper communion with our Lord, so when you remember the need to live a righteous life and how that is the life whose prayers are answered, turn to Christ, pray these prayers in faith, and trust the Lord's forgiveness and his righteousness that he gives to you. And walk forward in faith. So to wrap up these qualities, that brings us to 
and abiding life. Faithful prayer comes from the abiding life. So the qualities that faithful prayer comes from are faith, knowledge of God's will, humility, and a righteous life. It's a lot. And Jesus gives us one more category. But this one functions as an overarching category that catches all of them. It's an abiding life. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. How do you describe a person who has faith and does not doubt, who knows God's will, is humble, and walks in pattern righteousness? Someone who abides in Christ. Those who abide in Christ, who have his word in them and are growing, these are the people who are heard by God. But all of this means nothing if we are not in Christ, if we don't have that union with him. And that is why we are commanded to pray in Jesus' name, to emphasize that our prayers are based entirely on our union with him. Our prayers are accomplished because we are in Christ. So when you finish your prayers and you say, in Jesus' name, you're saying, I am in Jesus. I'm saved by faith in him. In him, I can ask that God accomplish his own will. I can be humbled, and I am counted righteous. So I know my prayers have heard, are heard. And God will answer my petitions as if Jesus himself were praying them. So what an encouragement to pray. We are one with Christ, and we can draw near the Father with confidence. May we never lose sight of our union with Christ and the rich privilege of abiding in him. So those are the primary qualities. So let's loop back to faith now and consider what it looks like to prayer, to pray in faith with these other qualities as well. So hopefully you see that there is more than just faith that's required for prayers to be answered. But still, what if there's a person who is full of faith, never doubts, knows God's will, is God-centered, humbled, lives a righteous life, abiding with Christ, and they ask for something miraculous? Will God answer? Well, we have the testimonies of Christ himself, Elijah, men like George Mueller, who would pray for God to feed hundreds of orphans like on a daily basis, not asking men, and God would feed them. God does do great things according to the prayers of men. We must not minimize that. But at the end of the day, there are some prayers that we know that we can't know whether or not it is God's will. When that happens, we give our request and we submit it to God saying, I know you can do this. I have faith. I'm not doubting. But even so, let your will be done. If this is your will, there is no way it will not be done. Jesus prayed like that in the garden, Matthew 26, 42. And so should we. It's a humble, content, yet bold faith in Christ. So, that was a lot. After looking through all of that, I know I felt burdened to come to the Lord and ask him to help me grow in these qualities, help me be a righteous man, help me be humble. But thankfully we have some encouragements as well that will hopefully put some wind in our sails. So first of all, we have an intercessor, Romans 8.26. So we looked at all these things. We not even scratched the surface of the prayers of the Old Testament or all the prayers of Paul and much more that the Bible has to say about prayer. And prayer is one of those things that will take our entire lives to study, to understand. And we still won't know it enough then. 
And though we strive, we will never pray perfectly. We'll never reach that point where you say, you know, I think I prayed that exactly as I ought to have. And the Lord knows this, and that's why he sent his spirit to us, to intercede in our prayers when we don't know how to pray. Romans 8, 26. We can trust the spirit to vocalize our needs, our praise, our requests to God in the way that is just right. And if you're ever worried about falling short in your prayer life, remember that Christ himself is interceding for you. Christ himself is praying that you grow and you mature with him. See that in John 17 and Hebrews 7.25. With two parties of the Godhead interceding on our behalf, we are sure to succeed. Not only that, we can have hope in our prayers because it will bear more fruit than we can imagine or that we will even ever see. When we pray, we can hope that God will bear amazing fruit through them. Paul gives a gripping benediction to the Ephesians. He wrote, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20-21. So Paul said that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or even imagine. Do you ask God to move a mountain? He may move a planet. And as John Piper says, God may be doing a million things in and through your life, and you may see three of them. When you pray, God will answer. We may not always see it, but we know that he answers above and beyond what we can fathom. And so God is able to do so much more than anything we could ever ask. Truly to him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and explaining to us clearly the qualities of prayer, things that should be coming from our hearts, our lives, uh, as we consider these things. We just ask that you help us grow in these areas, teach us to pray, in communion with you in the way that you would have us. Give us encouragement and hope and just the beauty and the wonder that you hear us, that you love us, that you want us to come to you and comfort us as well, Lord, that we have Christ and the Spirit interceding on our behalf, interceding for our prayers uh, and accomplishing great things in us and for us even when we don't know how to pray as we ought. We love you. Praise in Jesus' name. Dismiss us with her blessing. Amen.